Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Yesterday, President Donald Trump announced that the United States would pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. The multi-nation agreement was designed to prevent Iran from pursuing nuclear armament in exchange for the elimination of sanctions against that country. The Iran deal was the result of a long negotiation process during the second term of President Barack Obama. For his part, Obama issued a statement after Trump's announcement and condemned the move in really stark terms, calling it, quote, misguided and a serious mistake. Those are really uncommon words for a former president to use about the policy decisions of a sitting president. But Obama and his secretary of state, John Kerry believed the Iran deal was the best way forward for the United States and for the world. Imperfect, but a path forward to denuclearize Iran for a decade. Trump said the agreement's 10-year lifespan was part of its inherent flaws and that the United States will be safer pulling out of the agreement. Trump says leaving the deal will make the U.S. safer. In fact, many experts, though, say leaving the plan only creates instability in an already fragile region, and it hobbles the ability of the United States to craft agreements with nations in the future. That's where we want to begin the conversation today with Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. And we want to hear from you. I see a lot of folks on social media talking a lot about this. Call and tell us what you think about withdrawing from the Iran deal. Is this the kind of move, bold move, uh, that Donald Trump talked about that could have uh, consequences that we would not have imagined, positive consequences that we couldn't have imagined with a safer strategy? Or is this recklessness? Is this the kind of courting of disaster that so many people were afraid Donald Trump would indulge if he won the presidency. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we will work you into the conversation. And joining us today to talk about this issue are two local experts on the Middle East and other uh, political issues around the globe. Peter Trumbor is a professor of political science at Oakland University. He researches and teaches courses on international terrorism. Peter, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Also here is Saeed Khan, senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University. Uh, Saeed, Welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be back, Stephen. All right. So let's start with uh, both of your quick takes on uh, the wisdom of, of this move and the possible repercussions. Peter, I'll start with you. Uh, quick take. There's no upside for the United States. In fact, it's more damaging than anything else. In particular, it calls into question the ability of the United States to, United States to make credible commitments in other arenas. Um, and we get really nothing out of it. Um, we get no added security. We get no uh, likely cooperation from the allies that were on board with us uh, in this endeavor. And in fact, it uh, is a self-inflicted wound that drives a wedge between us and our partners. Uh, Said, Yeah, I would agree. Uh, there's no wisdom in, uh, in this. And I think it's important to go ahead and recognize that it is the United States that has, in fact, violated the deal by, by withdrawing from it. Uh, I think it may, in fact, be the first time that the United States has 
withdrawn from a multilateral international agreement. So this is quite historic in, in the wrong direction. I think it also then uh, calls uh, into severe question America's credibility around the world in, in adhering to any deal uh, beyond one presidential administration, uh, because usually these matters are matters of policy, not politics, and uh, could perhaps even aptly uh, designate America around the world as a pariah state. So the president says, basically, that this will make the United States safer, that the 10-year window uh, that this uh, that this deal had was not good enough, and that uh, withdrawing from the deal will probably inspire or hopefully inspire regime change. Uh, why, is, why is he wrong about that? <laughs> okay, well, uh, <laughs> how to start. Um, in terms of making the United States safer, if the problem was that in now eight years, Iran could resume uranium enrichment uh, under the, the, the agreement that we just walked away from, mm -hmm. now they can start, they can resume today. They can do it today. So that logic doesn't seem to hold up. By the same token, the idea that the United States, by unilaterally reimposing sanctions, is going to either curtail Iran's nuclear ambitions or bring the regime to its knees when broad-based multilateral sanctions over a period of, of decades failed to produce that result stretches credulity. So I'm not sure where any of this, um, any of this comes from in terms of basis in fact. Yeah. See? Yeah, so I'm going to take this in a slightly different angle. Uh, if you take a look at the Middle East, and particularly when you're looking at the Persian Gulf region, what brought safety, stability, and security to that region and to the United States was symmetry and balance, uh, particularly between the two uh, most uh, dominant forces there, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, that, of course, ended in 1979 because of the revolution. But if by uh, withdrawing from this deal, we now have an even greater level of asymmetry, the, the kind of doubling and tripling down with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, that is going to create then further turmoil in the region. Uh, it is going to manifest itself into increasing proxy wars as the ones we already see in places like Syria, Iraq to a certain extent, and Yemen. Uh, Iran is going to, of course, feel threatened because it is in fact surrounded. And after the sale of multi-billion dollar uh, arms deals to Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and others by countries like the US and the UK and France to a certain degree, it's going to then uh, create uh, greater turmoil, greater instability, and for a president who seems to thrive on chaos and wanting more of it, he may get his wish. And and some of this is about his approach to things. I mean, he he has said many times that uh, things in Washington, things around the globe were too predictable, that the United States was acting in ways that were too predictable, and that uh, when you're dealing with regimes like the one in Iran, when you're dealing like regimes with regimes like the one in North Korea, that sometimes that's not the way to get the outcome that you want. I think if if the president were sitting here, he would be boasting quite a bit about uh, how that's worked out in North in, in North Korea so far, and and we could talk, I'm sure, for hours about why he might be right or wrong about the read on what's actually happening between North and South Korea. But if this is if the goal is to shake things up and to 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 sort of keep people on their heels. Uh, because they're not sure what we're we're gonna do. What, what what's what's the what's the problem with this kind of uh, this kind of decision? Well, it's never worked. I mean, and I think we have to take a look at this idea that 
if uh, the president is the first to inject chaos into the region. Uh, from the other perspective, the region will go ahead and claim that there has been chaos there at least for the last century. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the case of Iran, this is not their first time at the so-called rodeo with the United States, 1953, with the ouster of a democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, with the complicity of backing a, a rather brutal tyrant in, in the form of the Shah of Iran, leading to 1979 and the revolution there, as well as some rather dubious post-revolution interaction. After all, it was President Reagan who was selling arms to Iran through the Iran-Contra affair uh, with uh, the new president of the National Rifle Association, Oliver North, mm -hmm. uh, being at the spearhead of that. And uh, quite a bit of negotiation uh, back-channel uh, during the uh, interaction with Afghanistan and al-Qaeda. It's not known to many people, but uh, this current president of Iran, uh, um, Hassan Rouhani, and the current foreign minister, Javed Zarif, were meeting with uh, the uh, U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Ryan Crocker, offering Iran's help to take care of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Those views were spurned later on thanks to an axis of evil speech by uh, then-President George W. Bush, as well as interventions by people like Vice President Cheney and Scooter Libby. Uh, Peter, what's wrong with, with the idea of shaking up a foreign foreign policy from the United States standpoint, and and speak to the the question I think that the, the, the president is trying to get to beyond the nuclear question, which is... Uh, Iran's role in in terrorism and state-sponsored uh, terrorism. I, I think part of what he's saying is sitting down and and talking with uh, with people who are involved in things like this doesn't work. That it's sort of trying to uh, place a, a, a rational lens on an irrational actor, and that you have to sort of match. Uh, to some extent, their unpredictability. What's what, Why is that not the right way to, to do this? Well, there's all kinds of ways to push back against that, that set of arguments. Um, generally speaking, when we talk about foreign policy and diplomacy, we think of stability and predictability as virtues, not as, not as problems. Um, and in part, it's because when you have this, this idea that injecting chaos might be a positive, well, what that produces is uncertainty. And uncertainty encourages miscalculation. And miscalculation, when we're talking about matters of, of conflict and the potential for conflict, that can lead to really disastrous consequences. Now, it's one thing to have a strategy that says we're going we're gonna to shake things up a little bit if there is some kind of plan behind that. Mm -hmm. But there is absolutely no evidence that there is any plan for what happens after yesterday that there, is no, there was no uh, plan to bring the allies on board with this move. Uh, in fact, in some ways, the president was disingenuous when he talked about the French, the British, and the Germans being on board with the United States in a statement yesterday, um, when all three of those countries actively sought to keep the United States in the JCPOA. So that's a problem from the first go. I think another question that we're going to have to talk about at some point when we think about this today is that what the president was asking for this agreement to do, in other words, to curtail not just Iran's nuclear ambitions, but mm -hmm. also its development of, of long-range ballistic missiles, to convince Iran to stop uh, sponsoring terrorist groups and to stop Iran from being uh, what we would consider a bad actor in the region. Well, this agreement was never intended to do all of those things. 
It was an arms control agreement and a very well-crafted one and, frankly, a very successful one to then try to lard it up with all of these other expectations and say, because it doesn't do that, we're going to walk away, again, I think, is a, is a disingenuous argument. Well, well, I would actually add uh, that perhaps then what we really see is uh, there is a plan, and that plan is to provoke Iran into doing something uh, untoward, which would then give sauce for the goose uh, to take some kind of military intervention. I think what is really being underestimated, though, is that Iran is not really that stupid. Uh, they are a very cool customer. Uh, I think it's no accident and coincidence that this is the country that invented chess. Uh, they see the board uh, several, several moves several ahead. Several moves ahead, right? Uh, go ahead, Peter. Well, right. Iran today is not Iraq under Saddam in 2003. And I think we have to recognize that. Um, and, and, and that's and, that's a really important point because I think for a lot of people in this country, uh, when you think of a, a place like Iran, given the, the coverage that the issue gets and, and things like that, you do think of them as uh, – you do think of their leader as being like Saddam Hussein or some other uh, really irrational actor who, who we have to deal with. Well, Saeed is probably better equipped to, to, to get into this probably than I am. Uh, but I think there's some fundamental differences in terms of the maturity and stability of Iran's institutions, the extent to which the population is generally united behind its regime, even if there's disagreements, the extent of, of nationalist feeling uh, within Iran that makes Iran fundamentally different than what, the, what Iraq was. And I think what's dangerous in this current moment is the very same voices that were advocating for this very reckless stand in Iran, people like John Bolton, and then in internationally, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu were uh -huh. the very same people who were advocating for uh, regime change in Iraq. Right, right. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right, Pete. And I think people tend to gloss over the Middle East as being just one monolithic people. Uh, the Persian uh, society is based on a 2,500-year-old civilization. And the Iranian people, irrespective of where they align themselves on a religious level, will still hearken back to that kind of tradition. Uh, Turkey, similarly, has this long historical arc, but we have to remember that countries like Iraq, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, these are all creations, really from the last hundred years and the post-World War I carving of the map by Western interests. Mm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Uh, my guests are Peter Trumbor, a professor of political science at Oakland University. He researches, researches and teaches courses on international terrorism. Also here is Said Khan, a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University. We're talking about President Donald Trump's decision to withdraw the United States from the Iran nuclear deal. Is that the kind of crafty shaking up of the status quo that Donald Trump talked about and will yield some sort of positive consequence that we couldn't have foreseen before? Or is this recklessness? Is this the kind of uh, move that could court real disaster uh, in the Middle East? Uh, we want to hear from you for sure. 313-577-1019 uh, is the number on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. No surprise, the phones already are uh, ringing off the hooks uh, about this issue. Let's go to Kenneth at Wayne, Wayne State. Kenneth, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you, Stephen. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, professors, for the really engaging, interesting conversation. 
My question is that I have a lot of them, but I'll ask the one I'm uh, most interested in is that um, what, what is the United States expecting out of Iran? I mean, I mean, it really seems like another attempt to instigate regime change and institute a neoliberal proxy democratic state, much like in Chile and like other uh, places the United States has interfered in, like in Iraq as well. I mean, it's, is that the foreign policy goal or is there something else? I don't believe it's genuine interest in making the region safe because obviously leaving the agreement isn't doing that. Yeah, I think that's, an, that's a great question, Kenneth, uh, and, and I'll refine it just a little. Um, Trump talks about regime change. What would he want in terms of that regime change? Uh, who would he want to be at the head of, of that state who would be better? And... Uh, a sort of corollary question, what is he likely to get if there is regime change? What's the likelihood of significant policy change accompanying that? The only concrete policy goal that I took away, uh, long-term policy goal that I took away from the president's statement yesterday was one advocating regime change. And I frankly have no idea what a a post-Islamic republic uh, framework would look like in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and so would that be a, a partner of the United States? Uh, who knows? This idea that we can somehow manufacture a, a friendly, Western-leaning, democratic Iran overnight um, by imposing economic sanctions, mm-hmm. I think is, is just a fantasy. So I don't, I don't know what our, our end game is in any kind of realistic sense. Hmm. I think that's absolutely right, Peter. I, when you take a look at uh, what is going on now compared to perhaps a few decades ago, we no longer live really in a unipolar or even a, a, um, a bipolar uh, superpower uh, paradigm. There are other players who come in with a lot less baggage. So even if there is going to be a regime change, Patrons of such countries like Iran could be, in fact, China. In mm-hmm. fact, China is looking at a multi-billion-dollar infra- infrastructure investment plan to reopen the Silk Road, which, by as as a matter of fact, is going to go through Iran. Mm-hmm. So, if we were going to be charitable and give this administration uh, its deference to have really a lot of wisdom, they may be looking at that as a long durée. Uh, this as a way to stanch Iran's uh, growing uh, connectivity with China. I don't think that they're thinking that far ahead on the chessboard. At the same time, we have to look at this rather spurious argument that somehow or the other, the United States is going to be able to bring about regime change and that there is a, a good guy team on board. And this is why people like John Bolton, who is currently the national security advisor, and Rudy Giuliani, who's the current legal counsel to the president, both were ardent supporters of an organization called Mujahideen e Khalq, MEK, which until six years ago was a designated terrorist organization mm-hmm. in, in both the United States and the EU. So they are looking at uh, this as the advocate group uh, to have members of the MEK come in in a, as, as Peter said, a post-Islamic uh, regime Iran, which of course would be disastrous. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, that I know about the people of Iran. And for a while in uh, the last decade, there was a lot of coverage of this is there's this sort of thirst for freedom, for uh, cultural freedom, for economic freedom, uh, that, that a lot of the products we make for instance, here in the United States, are quite popular among uh, young people in Iran, and that for a while the, the the game it seemed from our side was to try to encourage 
that generation of Iranians uh, and and their instincts and hope that they from the inside would be able to produce uh, uh, regime change. What what happened to that? Well, there's a few things. First of all, they have choices. Uh, we might want to sell them Apple iPhones, uh, but they can get Samsung Galaxies. Mm -hmm. uh, the world is much more globalized, so right. uh, America is not the only option. Second of all, uh, there's a lot of cynicism around the world today about the word democracy, particularly the phrase liberal democracy, because they see in so-called liberal democracies, in those countries which are in fact advocating and proselytizing about it, severe contradictions, if not hypocrisies. And again, the Iranian people are going to be rather wary that anything that is being uh, proselytized from the United States comes with uh, heavy baggage and this whole idea about duplicity. And the president walking away from a deal like this only adds then to this whole notion of duplicity from America. Yeah. Yeah, let, let me also come back to uh, something that um, that Said alluded to, and I and I think that we're all kind of, I think we're all kind of working in a mistaken framework mm -hmm. when we look at what happened yesterday, and that is we are making, I think we're making the mistake of thinking of this administration as somehow a normal administration <laughs> that has a strategy, that has thought about that strategy, yeah. that has examined alternatives, that has tried to lay out. In, in some kind of fundamental way, uh, some meaningful cost-benefit calculation to arrive at some endpoint in mind. I don't think that... So you believe that's just I, impulsive? Yes. Yeah. I think this is part the continuation of Trump's Obama negation strategy. And uh, I, I hesitate to ascribe any larger strategic hmm. vision to it than that. Hmm. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the Iran nuclear deal. I want to thank Saeed Khan, senior lecturer of Near and Middle East history and politics at Wayne State University. I know you have to run, uh, but it's always great to have you here. Great to be here. Uh, we're going to continue, though, with Peter Trumbor, professor of political science at Oakland University. And we will continue with your calls. Matthew in Oxford, Ahmad in Dearborn, Ed in Detroit, and Tom in Detroit. We will get to you next. Also, remember that if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. If you go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen whenever you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Peter Trembor, professor of political science at Oakland University. He researches and teaches courses on international terrorism. We are talking about the announcement yesterday by President Donald Trump that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Is that something that will produce better results for us in the Middle East? Is it something that will slow Iran's nuclear program somehow through other means? Or is this just an impulsive uh, action on the part of this administration, something that could court real disaster, not just in Iran, but in the entire region? We, of course, want to hear from you 
uh, about uh, the deal, what you think about what Donald Trump is doing. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Matthew in Oxford. Uh, Matthew, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi there. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Yeah, I was listening. I've uh, been listening uh, early on. You mentioned Korea. And, uh-huh. and, uh, um, I was thinking about, you know, one of Trump's main motivations is to undo everything that Obama did, including this agreement. Mm-hmm. And if we look at Korea, you know, we give, we, we give Trump way too much... Uh, credit for what's going on in Korea, and we don't get enough, uh, you know, media is so caught up in uh, looking at sensationalism, what's going on today, and not looking at, you know, how things got to be where, where they are. Now, back in October, after the last nuclear test, there was a major cave-in in the Korea, in their, in their uh, facility, and they lost about 200 people in their program, including about a dozen top scientists. Uh, you can see this. There was an article in the Washington Post uh, within the last month that talked about that. Uh, and then I also know that Russia and China have both been amassing troops on the border with Korea, and they started cutting off uh, the oil supplies. Uh, you know, and they forced uh, Kim to come to Beijing and meet with Xi, and he basically laid the law down, mm-hmm. saying, you know, you better uh, sit down and talk uh, about what's going on, or you know, we're going to cut you off completely. Um, so, and then, uh, you know, Kim, of course, comes off looking like the winner because he's brought Trump to his knees. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the narrative in North Korea right now that, uh, he brought Trump to his knees, uh, you know, to, to come and negotiate with right, him. So, right. um, we get, you know, the, Trump's main motivations, you know, one is to, uh, undo what Obama did. And the other one has to do with what uh, um, Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. Right, you know, just right. by destabilizing things, that justifies more spending on uh, on the war machine. Right, uh, Matthew, I, I really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, as you said, I mentioned the Korean uh, developments earlier in the in the conversation. Peter Trumbor, I, I, I want to get your take on how this relates to the president's behavior with regard to Korea and and also help us understand a little more about what is actually going on on the Korean peninsula rather than these sort of shorthand uh, descriptions that I think we're getting from the administration. Right. So and the president did connect the two cases in his statement yesterday. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he's um, uh, if I can't quite recall the exact language, but something something along the line of that, you know, everyone's going to know that when we talk tough, we mean it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's Okay, that's all well and good. That imp- that it suggests that when we look at, at where we are with North Korea, that somehow the president's tough talk equals coming to the table from a position of strength relative to a position of weakness. And what I would, would ask people to think about is who's really coming to the negotiating table in North Korea from a position of strength. North Korea has at this point, achieved its two primary goals in terms of its, of its armaments programs. It has a, a workable weapon, and it has developed uh, ICBM capability that allows it to deliver that weapon to the United States. Mm-hmm. That's what they've been seeking. That's what they've been trying to achieve for they 25 years. Yes. And so now having achieved that, now they're willing to come to the table and talk as equals. And that's something that, that we have never allowed them to do. 
uh, this idea that we would sit down and negotiate with North Korea without any precondition whatsoever is something that every administration has has, has rejected. Yes. has rejected that point. Um, and so, you know, what does that say about who's really driving this? Uh, I think it says more about the the savvy of the North Korean regime than, frankly, it says about our own. Mm-hmm. Um, the caller, I think, makes uh, I think a, a, a useful point when he when he reminds us that there has been some serious degradation of North Korea's uh, testing capabilities. They have, in fact, damaged their own facilities. Uh, They've made their primary test site essentially unusable. And so that means it's a good time to announce a unilateral end to testing. But once you've figured out how to do these things, you don't really need to test them physically. The United States hasn't done nuclear tests in decades, and yet we continue to, to modernize our own arsenal. We don't need to do it. Uh, most countries, once they achieve the capability, don't need to do physical to tests anymore. That. Right, yeah. exactly. So this idea that somehow uh, taking this this hard line on Iran is now going to translate over into uh, success for the United States in our negotiations with North Korea, again, is, I, I think, another example of this magical thinking from the Trump administration. Hmm. Hmm. I don't see any reason to believe that these two things are going to be in any way positively connected to each other. Yeah. I, in fact, I would argue the opposite, right? Why would the Kim regime now believe any agreement that we reach with the with them right. on this issue? Right, and it, it shows us to be unpredictable. We the, are, the, the, yeah, the we are. The thing that the president says we should be. We're right? an unreliable partner. We are potentially a feckless partner. Yeah, yeah. Matthew, thanks very much for the call and the questions. Let's go to Hamad in Dearborn. Hamad, welcome to Detroit today. Yeah, good morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. i got a comment and a question, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Um, my comment is that the uh, president's d- decision yesterday benefits two people only. Uh, Jared Kushner, his uh, son-in-law, and Benjamin Netanyahu. And my question is sanctions. Mm-hmm. Uh, sanctions didn't work against Cuba. Uh, didn't work against Saddam Hussein. It didn't work against uh, um, Iran. So why would we have more sanctions than Iran this time? Hmm. Uh, great question, Hamad. Uh, the sanctions, you know, for a very long time have been part of U.S. Uh, international policy and, and, and practice. Peter Trumbor, they don't always produce the results that we want. I, I, I'm not sure if, if most of the time even they produce the results that we want, but is it time to start thinking differently about ways to coax uh, other actors into doing the things that we want them to do? Uh, we'll see. My friends that study sanctions um, would argue that, you know, done right and with the right expectations about what you can accomplish with them, sanctions can be really effective mm-hmm. uh, policy tools. Generally speaking, though, the United States and most other countries, when they impose sanctions, it's a, sig- it's a signaling mechanism. It's a signal to the, the target of those sanctions that you disapprove of their conduct. It's a signal to a larger international organ- uh, audience that says you shouldn't do this either. And it's a signal to your own sort of domestic political arena that says we're doing something mm-hmm. about an issue that, mm-hmm. that people might care about. But in terms of being able to produce big changes in policy in terms of the target, uh, regime change in Cuba or Iraq, denuclearization of Iran, no. It, sanctions alone, generally speaking, can't do that. Uh, I think what is was useful about the agreement that we just reneged on is that it really was incentive-based. And, and what we often see, especially in dealing with adversaries, 
is that we get more mileage out of offering them incentives to cooperate than we do out of punishing punishment. them yeah. with, with economic sanction. Um, Iran stood to receive some really meaningful benefit by agreeing to to put a halt to developing nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. uh, essentially to coming back into compliance with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, of which they are a party. Um, that's really what this is about, right? The JCPOA is intended to bring Iran back into compliance with its existing international commitments. Uh, the sanctions were intended to force that. And in some ways they did. And now relaxing those sanctions is really sort of that final step. Yeah. Um, but I think that that this notion that we can get, especially in matters of, of fundamental matters of security, that's the way that the, that the target thinks about their own security interests, sanctions aren't going to produce that. They never have. It's just not, it's not a policy tool that by itself produces that kind of result. Hmm. Country, hmm. Countries will take the pain to, to continue to advance what they perceive to be their own fundamental security interests. North Korea did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamad, thanks very much for the call uh, and the great question. Let's go to Brandon in Detroit. Brandon, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, thank you very much. Sure. Uh, I think I had a comment, and um, I believe that uh, uh, one of the priorities in Trump's Middle East policy and philosophy in general uh, is the protection of Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, if Iran had more acknowledgments of Israel and had better diplomatic relationships with Israel, this would not be any sort of an issue right now, and we wouldn't Mm -hmm. be going this route. But because of their stance towards Israel, I think that's a primary motivation towards Trump's thinking. Hmm. Uh, Brandon, thanks very much uh, for that for that call. Uh, we had a previous caller, Hamad, also uh, referenced uh, Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, the interests of Jared Kushner, the the president's uh, son-in-law. Uh, what role is that dimension of U.S. policy playing in this relationship with Iran? Well, if we go back to the domestic politics that surrounded the, the debate over whether to enter into the agreement at all back but in that period between 2013 and 2015, if you remember Benjamin Netanyahu came, came to the United States and, and made a speech before the Congress, essentially mm-hmm. lobbying against the foreign in – in the, at the U.S. Congress, lobbying against the foreign policy agenda of the Obama administration. Yes. Uh, and, and many of those uh, in Congress, including people like Chuck Schumer – uh, who voted against the agreement, um, did so largely uh, because of their perceived domestic political interest in essentially staying on the right side of what is an influential pro-Israel lobby in the United States. Um, but somehow, you know, I mean, I, I, I sympathize with where the caller is coming from, right? This idea that Boy, if, if Iran and Israel just had better relations, then this would all be a moot point. Well, all kinds of things would be a moot point if Israel had better <laughs> relations with its neighbors sure. and with the other countries of the region. You know, when Iran looks around the region and, and asks itself, what are the primary, what are our primary rivals, threats, and challengers? They don't see only Saudi Arabia. They also see, in particular, uh, Israel. And they see that both of those two regional rivals are solidly backed by the United States, and that puts us right in the middle of any equation uh, when the Iranians start to think about who do they need to deal with to, to deal with their own regional ambitions right. and their own regional aspirations. Right, right. Uh, let's go to Renee in Detroit. Renee, welcome to Detroit today. 
Renee, I think you got to turn your radio down there. <laughs> Are you there, Renee? Okay. Uh, I think Renee is listening to the radio and not to the phone. Uh, we'll try if she can call back. We'll try to get her into the conversation. Ed in Detroit, you're up next on Detroit today. Good morning. Hey. Uh, again, as usual, great conversation. Thank you. Um, this decision by the administration uh, puts more space between the U.S. and its principal European allies. Uh, it also ignores changes that are going on in the world. A recent article in the Journal of Democracy points out that China has, is sitting on a large quantity of U.S. dollars and U.S. sovereign debt mm -hmm. and is willing to use that money to finance a reshaping of the world order with Beijing at its center. Mm. And this is at a time when in the United States, both in the public and the administration, we are calls for retrenchment. In the 50s, the U.S. spent large amounts of dollars trying to help the economic development of countries uh, overseas. And if we look at the Marshall Plan, we have to say it was a success. Maybe not in other parts of the world, but sure. certainly in, in Europe. Uh -huh. The Chinese, I think, are trying to replicate that. And they are looking at Africa. They're looking at the, the Persian Gulf. Uh, and they're looking at, at uh, Central Asia. And they are quite willing to spend this money. And we may wake up in, in, in a couple of decades and realize that a new master has emerged on the world stage. Mm -hmm. And we will not be happy or comfortable in that new uh, with who that is right. right ed yeah. thanks very much for the call uh and and the comments uh, peter that does get us to this bigger space of what this move does to our relationships with other people around the globe uh, our allies in europe are very displeased with uh, with our move here and are vowing in fact to try to keep the deal intact without us which seems very dangerous in the sense that it isolates us uh, on the world stage, Ed uh, says uh, that pushes us closer to the idea of a China-centered, a Beijing-centered uh, uh, world stage. Is is that uh, hyperbole or or believable? Uh, no, I mean the landscape, the international landscape has shifted, and I think there's no there's no denying that. Um, does China have the ambition to to be a global hegemon? You know, probably. Um, are they going to leverage the traditional tools that get you there, which is principally a combination of, of military uh, and economic power? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the economic side. I, 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 I think those who are, are predicting um, a new sort of great power hegemonic military conflict, I, I, I think that's, that's probably uh, unlikely uh, for a variety of reasons. But this this question, though, about what is this doing to our other relationships is a really useful and valuable one. Um, what, the, what is happening right now is the United States is being decoupled from its, its most fundamental alliances. And that's generally speaking an, a, a policy objective of your rivals. Your mm -hmm. rivals seek to split you away, uh, isolate you. And, and the irony here is we are doing it to ourselves that we are taking the steps 
that is sundering these fundamentally important relationships. Uh, America first is becoming America alone. And Iran is now sitting in, I think, a very interesting position. They're sitting in a position that allows them to, as Saeed said before he had to leave, it allows them to point to the United States as the pariah, mm-hmm. as the country that, that, that breaks its word, as the country that can't be trusted. And our allies are looking at us and are, having, are, are, are being forced to think of us in the same way. I think that's fundamentally problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already seen an unwillingness of our European allies to follow our lead when we walk away from commitments we'd previously made. So when we, uh, under the, the, the final year of the Obama administration, when we reopened relations with Cuba and relaxed the sanctions that we had had in place since the 1950s, uh, that was welcomed across the board. Uh, when, the, when the Trump administration comes in, it closed all that down. And we told the Europeans once again uh, to honor the sanctions that we had in place. And the Europeans said, pound sand. And we will make up, and if you impose sanctions on European companies that are going to do business in Cuba, we will cover their losses. And that's what's happened. So are they going to uh, meekly fall into line behind this unilateral action? I, I suspect not. Yeah. They'll go their own way and form alliances because that for don't their own us. for their own security reasons, they'll go their own way. Yeah, it's not just that an Iran without nuclear weapons is good for American security and for regional security. It's good for European security. Why would they throw that away if they think they can keep that going? Right. Peter Trumbor, professor of political science at Oakland University, researcher and teacher on international terrorism. It's always great to have you here for these discussions on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. I enjoy being here. Up next, we're going to take a look at the life and work of the state school superintendent, Brian Whiston, who died on Monday. Stay with us on Detroit Today. <laughs> 